morning. Thank you. Good morning. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds for March 25th, 2015, officially spring. We uh, take it for what it's worth. Um, we um, have a couple of uh, um, bits of good news, lots of good news, but a couple of bits of good news, a couple of additions to the Chad family in the past few weeks. Many of you may have heard that Chief Resident Dr. Sam House had a, 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 a second daughter, Lucy, on Sunday? Monday? Early Monday morning. And they are home and, and, and well at this point. And Dr. Omar Buta in the PICU also added a... Lovely and that's in the last 10 days, so, so we're growing by leaps and bounds. It's also um, this week a, a special opportunity and occasion to recognize and thank our um, fantastic Child Life team, some of whom are in the room right now, led by Jessica LaPearl. So it's, it's, uh, it's National Child Life Week, right, essentially? But we're def definitely celebrating it. So when you see the child life specialists who do so much for our patients, uh, thank them more than you usually do. And today's also exciting and fun is Hillary Spencer has uh, uh, stepped up to be the first of the series of graduating senior residents who will be presenting their grand rounds as part of their scholarly activities for residency. Uh, I guess somebody had to be first. So there'll be a series coming. In fact, next week, Corinna Reynolds is uh, speaking at grand rounds on the um, provocative topic of young love or statutory rape, adolescence, confidentiality, and the law. But today, Hillary is going to uh, speak, speak with us. And hopefully, all got a, a feedback form for constructive feedback for the speakers after the presentation, which isn't going to intimidate Hillary. She shared that where she was just uh, doing an elective experience in Tanzania, they scored all of the presentations with a numeric score. So, so we're, we're hopefully not going to be that harsh. Um, hopefully everyone knows Hillary Spencer, who is a native of Indiana, uh, joined the residency three years ago by way of Indiana University School of Medicine, where she was Alpha Omega Alpha. She had spent some time at Hopkins, but also did her um, undergraduate training at Earlham College in Richmond, Indiana, where she was Phi Beta Kappa. We all know how uh, bright uh, Hillary is, but these are uh, consistent. And her time here at, at Chad, she has uh, led um, an opportunity to create an exchange resident program with uh, uh, the University in Dardar, in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, which Paul Palumbo works with. And we hopefully will be, will be welcoming your compatriot soon. Hopefully we'll be welcoming um, Hillary's paired uh, exchange resident in the coming months as an educational opportunity. She's also been a, a passionate advocate for the topic that she's going to speak about today, palliative care, and has been able to combine her interests in global health and palliative care. She's going to stay with us in, in the Dartmouth community at the Leadership Preventative Medicine Residency uh, upon graduation and probably pursue an infectious disease fellowship subsequently. So, Hillary, take it away. All right, so um, I'm talking today about pediatric palliative care in resource-limited settings. 
Um, there are some, just as an FYI, there are some stories and there are some pictures um, and names of patients. The names and the pictures aren't of actual patients, but the stories are. So just as an FYI as we're, as we're going forward. Um, so as Dr. Lau just mentioned, I just got back recently from Tanzania, and I have an interest in palliative care. Um, before I left, I started thinking about what palliative care might look like in Tanzania. I have a pretty good idea of what palliative care looks like in the US. I spent a month out at Akron in Ohio on a pediatric palliative care rotation. I saw patients with a lot of um, complex illnesses, a lot of patients with technology dependence. Um, and so I wondered what that might look like in Tanzania. I mean, you're not going to find the same technology dependence. What, what is palliative care going to look like? Is there a need for palliative care? What is the need? Um, so during the first few weeks that I was in DAR, um, the folks there knew that I was interested in palliative care. So they would point out palliative care patients to me. So the story of, of Ramadan came up, um, or you know, similar stories to the story of Ramadan several times. He was a patient that um, he was about 14, 15, um, and was admitted for progressive renal failure. And um, he'd been diagnosed some five to 10 years before. Uh, he was readmitted because he was having some more symptoms, and they were trying to figure out what more they could do for him at that time. Um, and he. Uh, didn't have any suitable kidney donors. They tried to go through the HLA uh, matching, and the family didn't have any money for dialysis. They tried doing peritoneal dialysis, but he was too uremic and was bleeding. And the family didn't have any money for, um, for further dialysis, so he was labeled, for my benefit, palliative care, even though we weren't really doing anything that was palliative for him. He'd be moaning in pain, and when I asked, are we going to start anything for, for pain for him? Are we going to start morphine? So we're, we're thinking about that. I and mean, he died without ever actually having um, pain medication started. Um, and there weren't any real discussions about what the family wanted um, in terms of going home to, to die at home or kind of what the, the next steps were when there weren't any more curative options. So um, I saw, I kept seeing these similar stories that when there were no curative options left for a patient, um, they would be labeled palliative. And they wouldn't necessarily typically be labeled palliative, but for my benefit, they were being labeled palliative um, without palliative care really being provided. Until I got to the fourth week I spent on the oncology unit, um, and there I met a palliative care team. Um, so Dr. Jane is pictured here with me, um, and she, along with a nurse-trained family support liaison, provide palliative care services on the oncology unit. They only work on the oncology unit, and that has to do um, somewhat with the history of oncology um, in DAR and what have you, but that's, that's the only place that they work. Um, one of their primary roles is explaining the diagnosis or even telling the family what the diagnosis is. Um, explaining the treatment plan, you know, that the patient is going to need chemotherapy and that they're going to be here for perhaps as long as four months. Um, and what the disease, expected disease course is. So those are all things that we would kind of identify as being the role of the, the primary care team, um, but has fallen to the, the palliative care team to explain those things. There are children that are admitted on nights and weekends who might have chemotherapy started, and the family doesn't even know that the child has cancer that hasn't been fully explained. Um, one of the other things that she um, and her partner do are help families understand how to dose morphine. So the um, pain management plan for patients on the oncology unit is this big bottle of morphine that sits on the desk at the nurse's station. And families are expected to come up and dose it. So the, the nurses dose IV medications and chemo, but families dose all of the oral medications. Um, so before I met Dr. Jane during the first couple of days on the oncology unit, I saw a child, we were rounding on a child with a huge jaw mass. They thought that she had um, 
Burkitts. And she would be kind of screaming and crying occasionally. She looked terribly uncomfortable. So I asked the primary team, what are we doing for, for pain? She appears to be in pain. They say, oh, don't worry about it. She's on morphine. So I thought, OK, well, I'm not going to cross this bridge right now. But I mean, if she's on morphine, then we need to increase it. She's obviously, um, her pain isn't obviously, is obviously not controlled. It wasn't until I met Dr. Jane that I learned that being on morphine means that the family is administering the morphine. Um, this mom in particular came from um, about 500 miles away. She's, this is her 10th child. Um, and when she was admitted, when the patient was admitted, mom was also sick. She, she had gastroenteritis. She was vomiting. She had IV fluids going herself. So she was having difficulty taking care of, of her daughter, um, just kind of that baseline being sick herself, let alone kind of learning and trying to administer these, um, these medications. So Dr. Jane helps families learn how to, um, how, to, how to dose them, so that they need to do this every four hours, not just as needed, that they need to increase or decrease the, the dose um, based on, on the pain. One of the things I think that they're doing that's a little bit more innovative at DAR is they support extended family members picking up morphine for outpatients. So access to, to morphine can sometimes be difficult. And instead of requiring that the patient show up in person, they actually support extended family members picking up morphine, which is helpful for patients that live in the DAR community. It's harder for patients that, that live other places in the country. And this hospital serves um, the whole of Tanzania. For, um, for pediatric oncology. Um, but that's one of the things I thought that they were doing that's um, actually quite innovative. So that's a little bit of an introduction to, to some of what I saw um, in DAR at Muhimbili. And now I'd like to turn um, our attention to some of the, the background to pediatric palliative care in resource-limited settings. And these are the objectives that I've set out for the talk. Um, to identify the scope of need for pediatric palliative care in resource-limited settings. To recognize, care as integral, to recognize palliative care as integral to comprehensive care. To recognize palliative care as a human right. And to identify barriers to pediatric palliative care in resource-limited settings and explore possibilities to overcome them. So as I mentioned, the first question that I asked myself when I was heading, is, is palliative care needed for, for children in resource-limited settings? I didn't know you know, what it would look like, but is it, is it even needed? And it's, um, the answer, simple answer to that is yes. The, the needs look a little bit different in some ways. Some of the needs are very similar to our needs, um, but there's definitely a need, and I'm gonna go through some of the, the reasons for that. So there are more children and higher death rates. In Sub-Saharan Africa, 16% of children die before their fifth birthday, compared to less than 2% in resource-rich Western countries. 80% um, of those children die without seeing a health care provider or receiving any symptom relief. So there are um, more, you know, the, the, just the raw need, the raw number of children dying is much higher. Um, cancer, for some reason, we sometimes fall into the trap of thinking that it's more of a, uh, a first world problem. But the burden of disease for cancer, especially in children, falls in resource limited settings. 80% of childhood cancer occurs in low and middle income countries. And the cure rates are closer to 20%. That's compared to 20% of the burden of childhood cancer in resource rich settings, with cure rates closer to 80%. So the, the burden of disease is falling in resource limited settings without nearly the same cure rates. <laughs> Um, so the need for palliative care is also important, and this is true for us here as well, because palliative care can improve goal-directed care. The, the sort of motto in HIV um, care is that treatment is prevention. My motto for palliative care is palliative care is treatment. 
Um, some of the things, as a reminder, that palliative care does as treatment include pain control. That's really the, the hallmark of palliative care. But palliative care also does a lot of other symptom management. Um, that's a wide variety of symptoms that children with chronic illnesses or life-limiting illnesses or at the end-of-life experience. As pictured here, fear and anxiety, depression, constipation, secretions, bed sores, wide range of symptoms that palliative care attends to and helps, um, helps manage. Psychosocial support for the patient and family, and anticipating future problems and defining goals of care. Um, the future problems and potential solutions might be different in different, you know, where, where resources vary, but there are still going to be decisions to make for, for children with these complex and potentially life-limiting illnesses. Some of the other things that the palliative care team at Muhambili at DAR is doing is through a program called Tumaini La Maisha, which means hope for life. Again, this is a program that's um, administered or, or is occurring through the oncology service. One of the things that they provide, again, to the oncology patients is this place called Ujisiri House, which is basically like David's house. It's a place that families can go, but also patients can go in between inpatient stays. So some of these families are coming from 500, 800 miles away. They can't go back and forth in between inpatient stays. So the, the families can go to this house um, where, they can, where they can stay and be together as a, as a family. They're providing therapeutic play opportunities, as pictured here, um, child life at work. Um, they provide schooling as well. They, do, um, they have, a, have a teacher and have some schooling programs trying to get kids to continue schooling efforts, which we know is really important. And then they provide other family support. And one of the things that they're doing, I think, that's particularly unique is they um, have some sewing machines and some other um, craft uh, materials, and they help some of the mothers learn to do some sewing and some beading and some other crafting skills so that they can make items that they can sell and have a, as a source of income while they're away from their typical source of income and so very far away from their families and their usual community supports. That's one of the things I think that they're doing that's um, quite innovative. Another one of the things that they're doing that's not necessarily directly palliative care, but shows the intersection between palliative care and curative care or prevention or diagnosis is through um, these posters that they use um, and helping these cancer-affected families become community advocates. So these posters, which are in the hospital and then out in the community as well, um, show some common signs and symptoms of childhood cancer. So an absent red reflex, a protuberant abdomen, mucosal bleeding. And the idea is that these families learn some of what these symptoms are while they're in the hospital. They're already learning that the hospital is you know, a safe place and you know, not, not scary, that it's a, a place that they're getting treatment and that cancer can be treated. Um, and the idea is that they can go back out into the community and, one, maybe even identify children who, um, who have cancer that haven't been identified by providers in the community for whatever reason. But they can also encourage those families to seek treatment. And um, so they're turning the families into, into community advocates as well. So palliative care is treatment, and it has profound effects. So palliative care can help not only reduce the effects um, and symptoms due to the primary illness, but can also help reduce side effects of the curative therapies or the goal-directed therapies, which in turn can improve adherence to those therapies and improve morbidity and mortality. And one of the classic studies in adult palliative care um, that showed this improvement in not just morbidity but mortality um, is the study that was done in um, 
adults with metastatic non-small cell lung cancer. These patients were randomized to two groups. One group received standard care, and the other group received standard care with the addition of early palliative care. And the patients that received early palliative care received less aggressive care, but despite that, they were living longer. So they had a median survival advantage of three months. Additionally, as, a, as you would expect, they had improved quality of life and, and mood scores as well. So palliative care not only improved the symptoms and the quality of life, but actually improved the duration of life as well. So this was the difference between a palliative care um, and non-palliative care approach was kind of driven home to me in a couple of cases, one um, in DAR and one that I saw um, in Akron before. So Nuru was a baby that I saw on the neonatology service at Muhambili. Um, she was a baby that was born with a, a large encephalocele. Again, this isn't her, but it, she, the baby had a similar large encephalocele. And I rounded in the room, first with the attending, he rounded on the first half of the room, and when he was done with the first half of the room, turned over rounds to the registrar. So a registrar is a physician that's completed their internship but hasn't gone on yet to a residency. They're a general practitioner in the hospital. She rounded on the remainder of the room with the exception of this baby. Neither one of them rounded on this baby. And she was ready at the end of the day, um, at the end of rounds, to dismiss me for the day. And I asked her before I left what the plan was for, for Nuru, what, were, what, was, what was going to happen since we hadn't rounded on her. She said, well, the baby's two weeks and neurosurgery is going to come see them today. What do you think is going to happen? What would be your suggestions about what should happen? And I told her my experience with other babies with an encephalocele and what I expected. And we kind of agreed that the prognosis and the options were probably limited for her. Um, so I asked her, what does the mom think is going to happen? She said, I think the mom believes that the baby's going to have surgery. Go home and be fine. She said, these were her words, no one has the guts to tell her. No one has the guts to tell her what to expect, what this diagnosis means, what the implications of surgery are, or what the future will look like for neuro. And for me, this was in contrast to a patient that I saw at Akron. Again, Akron is in Ohio. Um, they have a very comprehensive pediatric palliative care service. Joey is another baby that was born with an encephalocele. Um, I didn't meet him when he was born. I didn't meet him until he was admitted when he was about six. The palliative care service wasn't involved from the time of birth, but shortly thereafter, within his first couple of years of life. And when he was admitted, every time he's admitted, they go and see him again. So I went along with them. He was being admitted because he was having degenerative hypoventilation. And um, the, the critical care team that was his primary team in the hospital anticipated that if support was removed, that Joey would undergo a rapid decline. So a trach was proposed, and the family has been, had questions about a trach before, never have they been presented with, now's the, the time to do this, but they've had palliative care involved for a long time, the discussions about a trach and anticipating future problems, that this was potentially a future problem had been brought up. So the family had considered a trach, but now it's being presented, they had to reconsider it in light of the, this being the, the juncture for decision. But they decided that they didn't want a trach. That wasn't the right thing for Joey, that wasn't the right thing for their family. Um, but they did know that they wanted Joey to come home to die. 70% of families, in surveys that are done in the US at least, 70% of families would like their child to come home and die at home. And they were in that 70%. They wanted him to be home with his fa extended family and his community around him. So the palliative care service transported him home on BiPAP 
at home. They removed the BiPAP and settled him in. All the family was there to see him, to, to hug and kiss him, and um, helped the palliative care team help sort of transition his care to the hospice team, the local hospice team that was there to meet him. The hospice team during that first night and the first few nights home provided symptom management with morphine, glycopyrrolate, and Ativan. And Joey started to, to turn around. Um, and he's not back to his pre-morbid baseline, but more than a year later, he's still alive. And he's still a cherished and active member in his own way in his family. Um, so those, for me, were um, two situations that showed sort of this contrast between a palliative care approach um, and, and the absence of a palliative care approach. So this is a slide that I think is one of the most important slides to take away from this talk or any talk on palliative care. And it shows the relationship between palliative care and curative care, the ideal relationship in time, at least. Um, for palliative care to be effective in improving goal-directed therapies, to be effective in improving morbidity and mortality, palliative care has to be instituted early ideally at the time of diagnosis. And early on, palliative care makes up a very small portion of the care that's being provided. And this early portion is called the thin edge of the wedge. As curative therapies diminish, palliative care becomes more predominant in the scope of care that's being provided. Um, but to make a difference in curative care, it has to be provided alongside curative care. And there doesn't have to be a sharp division between curative care and palliative care. It can be, you know, palliative interventions can be provided by the, the primary team as well. Um, but I think that that's important to remember that for, curative, for palliative care to have these profound effects um, throughout the course of a patient's illness, it has to be instituted early. So it doesn't have to be a choice between curative therapy and palliative therapy. It's not an either-or decision, but together these modalities work, um, they open the door together, you can open the door together, they work synergistically. So the need for palliative care in resource-limited settings is also important because the reduced access to care means more advanced presentations. So this is something that I saw over and over again at DAR as well. And Emmanuel was one of the cases that highlighted this. Again, this isn't Emmanuel himself. Um, but he was a patient that was about four and a half years old. He was admitted for fevers and was noted to have profound malnutrition as well. So at four and a half years old, he weighed 11 kilos and was stick thin. Um, when I met him the day after he was admitted, he was obtunded and seizing. So he was treated for meningitis and for his seizures and transferred to uh, a higher level of care. The next day when we saw him, he uh, was in respiratory distress and was retracting significantly and he had SATs in the 40s and a chest x-ray was obtained um, and it showed what looked like probably disseminated TB. So that was probably one of the underlying problems leading to his malnutrition, leading to the acute infection that caused the fevers that led to admission. But the other thing that was supposed to probably be complicating this is that his mother is also ill, and they believed that um, given some other things in his history that he probably had HIV. So those two illnesses, HIV and TB, were underlying um, the acute presentation at this point. It had obviously been going on for some amount of time. So it wasn't new, but he had presented in this very advanced stage. And he died shortly after he developed this respiratory distress, later that day, so on about the third day of his hospitalization. Um, 
So when he presented, he was no longer on that, that thin edge. He was down here in the thick edge. The curative therapies that were available to him were limited at that point. Um, and the palliative options really were the more predominant sort of modes of care that would be available to Manuel. So the need for palliative care is also important in resource-limited settings and in our setting as well, because palliative care is a human rights issue. So the uh, International Association for Hospice and Palliative Care, as well as some other palliative care organizations, put out this um, joint declaration and statement of commitment calling for the recognition of palliative care and pain treatment as a human right. And this was based on um, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which recognized the rights of everyone to life, to freedom from torture, and cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment, and to a standard of living adequate for health and well-being. So essentially, when we have treatment for pain, withholding pain treatment is tantamount to torture. So palliative care and pain treatment are a human right. So there's a need. Who needs it? Um, if you ask in general in the US, the, the often the population that gets cited as appropriate for palliative care are patients with cancer. If you ask in resource-limited settings, especially in Africa, people will often propose that HIV and AIDS are the population. Um, we've looked at this in the US. This is a study that looked at six pediatric palliative care centers in the US and Canada uh, and evaluated the conditions that those, treatment, those centers are treating or the patients have. And cancer, it's this green portion here, only makes up about 20% of the patient population that's being uh, treated in a palliative care center. The lion's share of the diagnoses are in the congenital and genetic conditions and neuromuscular conditions. So cancer is a diagnosis that we need to consider for palliative care, but there are many other diagnoses that are also appropriate for palliative care. And the same is true in other resource-limited settings and in, in Africa. So this is a, from the Global Palliative Care Atlas. It's a distribution of children in need of palliative care at the end of life by WHO regions and then disease categories. So this first, this first bar is Africa, the second bar is America, and the other bars kind of all end up being pretty similar. But HIV AIDS in the yellow and cancer in the dark blue in Africa still only make up about 20% of the diagnoses that are appropriate or would, um, should be referred for, for palliative care, for pediatric palliative care services. The remainder, the other 80%, are all the other non-progressive, non-malignant, progressive non-malignant diseases, which um, are a whole host of diseases. Cirrhosis, as we saw with Muhammad, progressive renal failure, profound cerebral palsy, extreme prematurity and HIE, um, congestive heart failure and muscular dystrophy. There are a whole a host of other conditions. So it's not just the, the low-hanging fruit of, of cancer and HIV that we often think of that are easier to, to get numbers on, a whole host of other conditions that are appropriate for palliative care. So there's, uh, we know the patients that need palliative care. How big is the need? So a lot of the previous studies looked at the need, again, only within the cancer and HIV groups um, because those numbers are easier to get. But this is a study that was done by UNICEF and the ICPCN in 2013, the International Children's Palliative Care Network. They put this together. Um, a three-country report, they were looking in sub-Saharan Africa and they chose these three countries, South Africa, Kenya, and Zimbabwe. 
and they were based, um, they were chosen based on the ability to get, uh, to get the quality data that they needed. And because th these were countries that were targeted for pediatric palliative care. And they looked at conditions, at the whole host of conditions, not just HIV and cancer. And they also looked at how that need is being met. So through interviews and, and surveys, they um, talked with organizations that are providing hospice and palliative care and individuals who are providing hospice and palliative care in these settings. Basically what they found is that the need is great. So this first table looks at the total numbers. And the thing I think is important to draw our attention to is that they differentiate between the generalized need and the specialized need. So generalized palliative care is that primary palliative care that we should all be able to provide. The general pediatricians, that general practitioners, that family medicine physicians should be able to provide, the kind of basic palliative care. And then they differentiated that from the specialized palliative care that are um, more complex needs that should be provided by a palliative care specialist. So they compared that then to the number of children that were reached by, this is again, specialist palliative care services. And what they found was that in South Africa and Zimbabwe, the need was being met at about 5%. And in Kenya, the need was being met at about 1% or less. Um, so the need is, is great, basically is what they found. So what are the barriers to care? Why aren't we getting this care? We know that it's important. We know what it can do. We know that the need is great. What are some of the barriers that, to getting this care to people? Um, so one, and this is true for us here as well, is that there's a lack of edu education and a, a lot of misunderstandings about what pediatric palliative care is. So a lot of times if you ask people, will equate palliative care with end of life and terminal care. And if you're not instituting it until the very end, that's all it can do. But if you're instituting palliative care on that thin edge of the wedge, palliative care is much larger. So it still includes end of life and terminal care, but is much larger than just that, if it's instituted early. Additional barriers to care include lack of integration of pediatric palliative care into the primary care system. So this is one of the barriers that's recognized, but one of the barriers that I found is that there's a lack of a primary care system. So for example, with, with Nuru, um, when the, the baby with a large encephalocele, if there wasn't anything more that we could do for her, sending her home would be difficult because there's not a primary pediatrician to send her home to for her to see in the community. When problems such as positioning and uh, decubitus ulcers occur, when feeding problems occur, it's very hard for patients to access the to access primary care in, in the community. Um, so it, you can't really integrate the palliative care services into primary care services when you don't really have those primary care services or when they're not robust. The lack of community and health professional awareness of pediatric palliative care needs and services is also a barrier. Um, they don't really have strong, in many resource limited settings, strong and robust palliative care services. But even when they do, many people don't know about um, them existing. One of the things that I found even at, um, at the hospital that I was at at Muhambili, uh, I mentioned to one of the residents who's a senior resident and has been through the oncology service that I had met Dr. Jane. I was so excited to have uh, finally found Dr. Jane who was doing palliative care. And she said, who, who's Dr. Jane? Um, so even within that setting, folks don't know the palliative care services that are, that are there necessarily. 
Additional barriers to care that I saw are some cultural barriers. Some of these are probably cultural barriers that are unique to sort of Tanzanian culture or maybe even in other resource limited settings. But some of them I think are the culture of medicine, which I think is a little bit sort of more an antiquated system, a little bit maybe more similar to where medicine looked like for us um, some 50 or more years ago. Um, but breaking bad news. So that was what we saw for, for Nuru. Nobody wanted to, to break that news. And so they avoided that entirely. Um, even after we had a discussion, I think a very fruitful discussion that I had with the registrar about how the mom might feel when she learned sort of what was the actual uh, kind of outcomes for Nuru would be, nobody wanted to touch it. Um, and so that's really ingrained is that we don't want to break bad news. We don't necessarily know how. And one of the things that I found is that even when the attendings would recognize that this needed to happen more, there, was, there wasn't necessarily the modeling going on for these residents. To, to learn to do that as well. Um, communication. This was again driven home for me in the case of Ramadan, the patient with the progressive renal failure. One of the providers said to me at one point, I wish somebody had told them. I wish, because the patient was diagnosed some five or 10 years before, I wish somebody had told them back then, because then they would have had the opportunity to save up for dialysis. So they didn't really go through the full explanation of what to expect. And when they didn't do that, the family never had the opportunity to anticipate those future problems. Um, and the care providers here recognized that that was a limitation to his care. But it's still it's sticky. Nobody wants to, to touch it or, or don't know how to touch it. And without breaking bad news and without um, good sort of foundational communication, you miss out on that shared decision-making piece, which is, I think, also very foundational to palliative care and making those next steps. You need to make them together, but you need to know what information you're working with to do that. So one of the other barriers to care that I think is very surprising, was surprising to me, is just the lack of access to opioids can be a barrier. It wasn't necessarily a barrier that I saw at Muhambili. Um, at least in the oncology service, there's morphine that's available. Certainly there are limitations to it. As I mentioned, the family has to know to go and get it. Um, but it, it does exist in the hospital, and providers feel that they can write a prescription for it. But in um, other communities, it might be difficult. And as a reminder, pain control is a human right. So we have effective tools to treat pain. And when we don't use those effective tools, we're letting patients suffer, and, and that suffering is tantamount to torture. So this was a document that was put out by the Human Rights Watch called Needless Pain, and it assessed the issue of Kenyan children who were dying with painful conditions and the inadequate pain treatment um, that they were receiving. And they identified several different area, areas that uh, were responsible for this, which included restrictive government po policies, lack of access to opioids, inadequate training, and fear of opioids. So government limitations aren't limited to Kenya. Um, this report was looking at Kenya, but it's something that has been found in other resource-limited settings in Africa, in the Middle East, in Asia, in Eastern Europe. It's recognized throughout. The limitations might be different, um, but they exist in other settings as well. So in Kenya, in particular, what they noted is that there were unintended effects of narcotics laws. So we know that there's a problem with illicit use of narcotics everywhere. And so there are laws to address this. But in particular, the laws only really focused on illicit use and didn't really give any guidelines around 
um, medicinal use or um, lawful use. And this left providers thinking that they didn't really want to touch it. They didn't want to get in trouble. They didn't want to you know, go to jail for mishandling opioids or misusing, misprescribing opioids. So that led, has led to, or at the time when, this, um, when they were looking at this, led to decreased use. Additionally, in Kenya, there's an import tax, or at this time, there was an import tax on, mor on morphine, which limits the use. Additionally, in other settings, in Kenya and other settings as well, there may be limited prescriber privileges. So it's not something that I've ever worried about. You know, if I, if I have a patient that's in pain, I don't really think about it. I can write for what I need here. Um, but different providers might be um, certified in different ways and might not have the privileges to provide that. So some of the entry level, um, the primary care providers in a community might not necessarily be physicians, but they also don't necessarily have prescriber privileges. So that's what it's, and it starts with. There might be limited access in the community, which is um, showed in this map, um, shows that in Kenya, of the 250 public uh, hospitals, only seven of them had oral morphine available. So if they have it available, um, that's, that's one step. But before you even get to that step, you have to have somebody that can prescribe it. Um, additionally, there might be limits to, to daily prescribed doses. Um, patients with chronic pain often have needs, opioid needs, that are much higher than patients with acute pain. So these doses are set, they might seem high initially um, or, at, or at first glance, but for patients that have chronic pain, the needs that they have might be much higher. And so that's another place that the government is restricting access. So this is a map that looks at the scope of the problem. Um, it's a map of patients with HIV or cancer who um, were, died in, with moderate to severe pain. And again, it shows that the burden of the problem falls in resource-limited settings. So the darker blue are the more patients, where more patients are dying with painful conditions. Again, this map is looking at HIV or cancer. Um, or patients that had HIV or cancer, which are not the only conditions that patients have that cause a painful death. They're the, some of the conditions that are easier to look at in terms of numbers, but the need is going to be much larger if you incorporate other painful conditions as well. This map looks at the problem in a slightly different way. And when I first looked at it, I felt guilty. So it looks at country size being adjusted to reflect um, opioid use. And I thought, Sure, we know we have a problem with opioid use in the US. No wonder our, our, our country size is so much bigger. It's bloated because we have a lot of illicit opioid use. We know that this is a problem. But if you look closer, it's country size is adjusted to reflect opioid medication use per death from cancer or HIV or AIDS. So this isn't reflecting our illicit use. This is reflecting use for, for painful deaths. And again, it shows that the burden of the problem falls in resource-limited settings. So why is pain undertreated? Um, one of the reasons that I've already highlighted is the lack of access to opioids, either lack of provider being able to prescribe them, lack of availability in the community, lack of understanding about how to use them. Um, lack of knowledge about opioids in this population is another barrier to adequate pain treatment. We learn a lot more about how to treat pain in the acute setting, in patients who have uh, are post-surgical or post-trauma. But patients with chronic pain have different needs, and it's a different, uh, treating them might be 
there are some, some differences. And one of those is that it's harder to estimate pain or to assess pain in this population. So patients with acute pain, we look at their vitals. You see that they have hypertension and tachycardia, that they're complaining of pain, that they're grimacing. Patients that have chronic pain might not show those same signs. Their body's sort of adjusted to it physiologically, so they don't necessarily show the same vital sign changes. And they might not show the same grimacing. Um, in terms of underreporting of pain, they, uh, again, this seems like a patient problem. Patients aren't reporting their pain. What could we do about it if they're not reporting it? Uh, but if you think about it, it falls back to us as well. Patients don't know what's available. Maybe it's not available. But patients don't know what can be done for them. So they don't, have, they don't know what to complain about if they don't know that there's a solution. So that comes, the underreporting of pain comes back to us, and we need to be asking about it, or providers need to be asking about pain in order to, to get at this point. And then the fear of addiction. So for patients with chronic pain, the, the fear of addiction or what appears to be addiction in that population tends to be more what we call pseudo-addiction. So they're seeking pain medication most frequently because their pain is being inadequately treated. But there's also a fear of addiction in the larger population. Treating pain and having opioids in the community you know, leads to opioids being used illicitly, or, or can be. We know that there's a problem with illicit opioid use. So there's a, a real fear of um, illicit opioid use in the community. Um, an, another thing that I found in terms of uh, underreporting and underestimation of pain as a, as a barrier at Muhambili is that um, one of the things that we do here nursing staff is very good about regularly asking about pain. We consider it you know, one of our vital signs, and we're doing regular pain assessments. Um, but the nurses aren't administering the morphine, and they're not asking about or assessing pain for patients either. So the folks who are working most closely with the patients and are seeing the patients 24 hours a day aren't necessarily involved in the pain management plan. Another misconception and, and barrier that I found at Muhambili is this notion that it's a choice between morphine or acetaminophen. So when I asked about this, you know, there was a patient that was on morphine, and I said, are they on Tylenol as well? And I was told that no, pharmacy says that we can't do both. They didn't necessarily understand the reason why they couldn't do both, but were told that they couldn't do both. So it's a choice of morphine or Tylenol. And as a reminder, the pain ladder for children has been simplified. So what I learned in school was this three-step pain ladder, mild pain, moderate pain, these intermediate opioids. It gets confusing. But the pain ladder for children has been simplified. It's two steps. The first step for mild pain is Tylenol and or ibuprofen. And the second step for moderate to severe pain is opioids on top of that first step, on top of ibuprofen and or, um, and or Tylenol. So where do we go from here? Uh, there are several different models of intervention in global health in general that have been used and are proposed um, for implementing change. Uh, and so that's one of the things that I kind of looked at in terms of models for implementing palliative care and getting these changes um, instituted. One of which is the vertical approach. It's a little bit older. Disease-specific interventions um, such as like polio eradication, so targeted at polio. Or what I saw in DAR as well, you know, TB care, which is separate from the HIV care, which is separate from sickle cell care. All of these different disease-specific interventions are kind of housed separately. Um, so you get this island of sufficiency without really addressing other needs. 
And for palliative care, this wouldn't really work. Palliative care is never going to be isolated on its own island in a separate silo from curative or goal-directed therapies. Um, moreover, a vertical approach neglects larger systems issues and doesn't lead to any change in infrastructure. So the vertical approach when it comes to palliative care gets the red light. Horizontal, the horizontal approach is another approach that uh, is suggested and, um, and gets uh, tried. And with the horizontal approach, there's a focus on primary care delivery and investments in health systems. And at its most basic, this means just addressing primary care and basic levels of care kind of from the bottom up. Wouldn't necessarily even be specific to palliative care, but I sort of tried to adapt it to palliative care. And what I thought for the horizontal approach is that uh, with the horizontal approach, you would focus on improving primary palliative care. So as you're improving palliative primary care in general, you would improve primary palliative care and kind of build up from there. The ways we can do this include better pain control. So morphine is cheap. There are some barriers to, to, getting, um, to making it available, but I think we, can, we could overcome those. And if people learned how to use um, morphine better and learn the pain letter, um, we could get better pain control kind of across the board. Improving communication. A lot of the communication, as, as I've kind of, I hope I've demonstrated, is, is really kind of basic. Um, and I think one of the ways to do that would be to, to model, uh, to improve communication would be modeling um, some of these efforts at communication. Um, but getting people across the board to communicate with families and patients and with other providers as well. Improving training for all providers. So with this horizontal approach, we wouldn't be just targeting specific people who do specialized palliative care, but improving training for all providers in the palliative care mentality and in primary palliative care efforts. And then integrating with adult efforts. So adult efforts towards palliative care um, in resource-limited settings are more advanced than pediatric efforts. They're certainly um, not, not necessarily where they need to be, but they're further along. Part of that reason is that adult deaths far outstrip pediatric deaths. Um, but also the reason that it would be important to integrate with adult efforts is that families are affected. So especially with conditions like HIV and AIDS, if a child has HIV, the mother likely has HIV as well. So you can't really provide effective palliative care to the child without, uh, um, without providing that care to the rest of the family members that are affected. Additionally, in um, many resource-limited settings, there are more general practitioners that are probably better positioned to treat both adults and children and to treat, to treat families. So I think the horizontal approach gets a yellow light. And it gets a yellow light. These are good things, but it gets a yellow light because it neglects specialized palliative care. And I think the alternative is uh, what's proposed as the diagonal approach. The diagonal approach, you integrate aspects of both the vertical and horizontal approaches. And the thought is that disease-specific interventions, so in this case, specialized palliative care, um, when delivered well, can also strengthen the health system at large. And disease-specific results can occur through improved health systems. So with the diagonal approach, we would integrate palliative care into existing structures alongside preventative care and active treatment, which leads to greater long-term success and means that palliative care isn't isolated from disease-specific care and doesn't take away from it. Because palliative care is never going to sit separate from other um, care modalities. So the diagonal approach, I think, gets the green light. And one of the important things in terms of 
the diagonal approach means that we need to improve specialized palliative care. And there are resources that are available for this. This is a handbook or, or toolkit that's specifically targeted at resource-limited settings. And it goes over a handful of topics. Each of them is very empowering. You can, you can do palliative care in your setting. Regardless of what resources you have, there are things you can do to institute palliative care, regardless of what resources you have. Um, you can build a team, because it's a team effort. It's not just one person. Uh, there's a, a whole team that it takes to, to do these things. Everybody who's involved in that patient, um, from physicians and nursing and child life and the whole spectrum of providers. Um, you can talk about difficult issues. That's one of the foundational pieces, is, is talking about and communicating about what the diagnosis is and what the choices are that have to be made. Um, you can control pain and other symptoms. And this is the very nitty gritty. It goes through how to assess pain, how to assess symptoms, dosing for different medications. Mm -hmm. You can help, help children and families. And then you can tell others. So doing that advocacy piece and letting people know about what you're doing and how you're doing it. But I think one of the things that I found that's really important in terms of getting specialized palliative care uh, out there, and when I looked at many different programs that were being done in resource-limited settings, and then also when I thought about what was being done here, is that each of them, one of the things that they had in common was a champion. So somebody to champion and move that effort forward. It takes a team to do it, but what I found is that there was somebody or some group, core group, that was pushing this this forward. And this is the story of um, Lucy Finch. She's a woman from Malawi who started a hospice and palliative care program in Malawi. And um, it was while she was tending to her sister who was suffering from cryptococcal meningitis due to HIV um, that she saw a neighboring patient who was dying in pain. For days on end, he was moaning. When she would ask the care staff about what was being done for him, they said, we don't have anything to give him. We have Tylenol. That's it. Um, and so she said, I vowed to myself then that I would never ever be put in such a situation again where I could not help someone who was suffering. So she came home and she sought out those resources. She couldn't do it on her own. She wasn't a medical provider. Um, but she sought out the resources to develop this and, and help address this in her own community. So she really championed and, and moved the palliative care efforts forward. These needs aren't unique to resource-limited settings, though. So we have a need for palliative care as well. And uh, I think that I've demonstrated that as we, as we go to, that a lot of the needs are similar in different settings. Um, and things that we can do here include better pain control and attention to symptom management. So recognizing the pain needs of patients with chronic illnesses and chronic pain as being different from acute pain, um, but also attention to symptoms. So I think recognizing that there are a whole host of symptoms, we have a lot of tools in our armament to address them, and we have a lot of access to those resources. So attending to them and recognizing that patients um, have these different symptoms is one place to start. Um, improving communication. So communicating with kids as well as families, which I think is something that we try to do, and we're learning um, more and more about how to do that, involving child life in, in our efforts to, um, to communicate with children. Um, but I think one of the things that we can do um, that's even maybe more basic is just keeping the big picture in mind. So with each, uh, if each question or each problem that we're, we're faced with for a patient, making sure that we're, we're not just thinking about that problem, but what that looks like in the scope of the whole, the whole patient and the whole patient's course moving forward. 
Um, and then integrating with adult efforts. So I think that that's something that we can do here. We don't have uh, pediatric palliative care services, and I think there are some things that are different between pediatric palliative care and adult palliative care, but there are a lot of things that, are, that we have in common as well. Um, and so we can piggyback on those efforts. So I think some of the major takeaways include that communication is foundational. Um, that's really the, the, the core piece that has to happen before we can do all those other supportive therapies. And um, the, the communication piece is the piece that doesn't even require huge input, inputs of resources to, to make happen. Uh, the majority of patients who need palliative care are not patients with HIV or AIDS or with cancer. There are a whole host of other conditions that patients have that are appropriate for palliative care. And on the flip side of that, um, much of palliative care can be done by anyone, um, not just specialists. So there is a need for specialized palliative care, but there's a palliative care mentality and palliative care efforts that can be adopted by everyone at any level of care. And um, palliative care needs a champion, so somebody needs to, to take it under their wing to, to, to move it forward. Um, so those are references. And I will take up, as you alluded to, with our child life specialists. As I mentioned earlier, it's Child Life Week, and we had an we've had an experience where, as our child life team has moved into the Dartmouth-Hitchcock and Elliott One Day Ambulatory Procedure Center in, in Manchester, that their presence has has coincided with a significant decrease in the need for analgesic and sedative medications. And so it, that is also part of the therapeutic armamentarium. So an, another shout out to our child life colleagues. Kathy. Thank you, Hillary, for inaugurating our, our senior class this year with our grand rounds. That was fantastic. Really a spectacular talk. I am wondering, especially in a resource-limited setting um, where the childhood mortality rate is so high, the communications about death and pain must be very different than what we experience here, where most of us do not have a friend or a family member whose child has died. So I'm wondering how much somebody like Dr. Jane, who's a champion for palliative health, involves either traditional healers or local elders or local um, community members with authority to have these conversations. Because again, they must be very different than what we're used to here in the United States. Mm -hmm. Um, so, unfortunately, I didn't get to, to see that necessarily. Um, she works at DAR in Muhambili and is already stretched very thin. So she'd like to be out more in the community, and they reach out to some of their patients that are in the local community, but patients are coming from very far away. So they're not even necessarily within their traditional community when they arrive for oncology services at DAR. Um, so I think that it's, uh, I don't think that they've necessarily been able to, to reach out to some of the home communities, if that makes sense. Marina, Dr. Reynolds. I'm, I'm rethinking my decision to go after you. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm just wondering, so, you know, there's all this talk of, like, what to call a palliative care team because these are such hard words and blah, blah, blah. So I'm just wondering what, like, names they had for it. Yeah. She, she called herself a palliative care physician. Um, I don't speak Swahili, so I don't necessarily know what she said when she was introducing herself to families. Um, I think that that concept... I don't know that people even necessarily have that concept of palliative care, or that there's a word in Swahili. I'm not sure, um, so I, I don't I don't necessarily know what she did. I think um, 
in general, what I understand is that we should call a spade a spade. It's palliative care. Um, anything that we, if we assign any other kind of name to it, if we have a stigma, that stigma will follow it. So we need to break the stigma and, um, and just call it palliative care. Dr. Levin, thank you for that very enlightening talk. And I understand what you're saying. I think I understand what you're saying about combating <coughs> ignorance with education and poor resources with making things available. But I'm wondering how you respect cultural norms that are different than ours. And I think this is also touching a little bit on what Kathy was bringing up. It's one thing to say this is good, mm -hmm. this is good here, but does that necessarily follow that it's good in its same form everywhere? Um, so I think that the needs are different and how it's instituted might be different. One of the things that I found, though, I was able to give a different talk, a talk on kind of palliative care to the providers, um, the general pediatric providers, as well as specifically to the oncology service. And what people said is, this is good. This is, this is good medicine. You know, the communication piece of this, we, we, can, we can do this. Um, and that this can help us. And one of the things that I, um, you know, exactly how it's instituted might be different, but that was one of the things that I was struck by is the registrar who was taking care of Nuru, you know, said to me, I, I agree, I'd like to be able to tell her, I don't know how to tell her. And I understand that when, the mom, when mom finds out that even if she has surgery, that the outcomes aren't gonna be good, and you know, that maybe she's not even going to have surgery. I'm not sure how, how to deal with that. I, I don't know what, what to do with that, and I'd like her to know, because I recognize that she might mistrust the system. So they, they see that, but they don't necessarily know. So at least to the providers, in my, ex, my experience there, would like to be able to, to do that better and recognize that. Or with the case of Ramadan, the child in renal failure, somebody said, I'm totally un." provoked by me. I wish somebody had said something to them earlier so they could have saved for dialysis. I wish that they had known what was coming. I wish that somebody had said earlier what was coming. Um, so I think exactly how it's done might be different, and there might be some things, you know, certainly there are different cultural aspects to how much is shared, but they're recognizing that there's a, a, a need to. Um, without me saying anything, I think that they were recognizing that need. So I will... Okay, that was outstanding. Anyway, thank you very much. I think this is one of those situations that you can't understand the poverty of the infrastructure until you've been there and seen it. In this hospital, the only oxygen is in the intensive care unit. The nursery has no, no, uh, no warmer. They keep the whole room warm for the benefit of the babies. Therefore, the, the workers sweat all day. Mm -hmm. because, so, it's, I mean, the, the poverty of the infrastructure is phenomenal. And, and, and applying our concept of... of palliative care with, with our infrastructure is, is impossible. The, the community health workers are not general practitioners. They're people without even nursing training. These are lay people providing primary care in communities. And it's, as you said, it's doable. It's fantastic, and, it, and it's a doable concept. I, got, I gave a talk on asthma and got taken down by a, by a, a, a tertiary care practitioner, a primary care practitioner in the tertiary setting. We don't have those drugs here. There's no way. They, you know, the, the question was, what would be ideal treatment? And he said, well, we can't do that because mm -hmm. we don't have flow vent. We don't inhale steroids. We barely have inhaled uh, uh, bronchodilate. So, so rethinking, as you've done, how to apply this to the, that resource is, is outstanding. 
And so one of the things that I did in my talk, because I had been there for a couple of weeks and, and seen that, is focus on what are those things that, that we can do without actually having resources. Because what I heard from people leading up to this is, great, you're giving that talk, but what are you, like, how is that going to mean anything to us? So I focused on those, those pieces of communication. And I was really surprised when I was met with, that's, that's good medicine. We can do that. That's something that we can do. We're thrilled that Hillary will be in the LPMR and continue to be a champion for us in pediatric palliative care. For those who don't know, Beth Ames is also participating in the palliative care education program at Harvard this year, so she will be one of our champions as well as we, as we heed Hillary's call to do better uh, here at CHAT. So thanks again. Thank